Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to them to Luke 17, which should be located on page 1,488 of your Reformation Study Bible. If you're wondering what the letters RSB are, that's what it is. And that is our official study Bible here at Rio. I've been gone the last couple of weeks, so you haven't had to endure hearing me say that again, but now you will. Um, We want you to have one of those Bibles. We want all of us literally, physically to be on the same page. We want to be interacting with God's Word. And so we make them available in the back, the Information Center, for $25. If you can't pay $25, pay what you can. If you can't pay anything and this is your church, take one. Take one. Just use it. And bring it with you on Sunday, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 17. As we begin today with a three-week series of messages that we're calling God's Word and the Pursuit of Holiness, all right? And I want to acknowledge before you at the beginning of this message that I know that's kind of a lofty-sounding title. I know that's a bit inaccessible. There's a sense in which you hear that title and you think to yourself, okay, Tom, A, not really sure what that means, but B, I kind of get the impression that whatever it means, it's significant. Because just listen to it. God's Word, and here we go, you ready? The Pursuit of of holiness. How can that not be big? And it is big. Here's what we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. Today, as a starter, we're going to talk about why it is that you and I ought to get up every single morning as believers in Jesus, and every single morning as believers in Jesus resolve in this day to pursue God with a greater level of more radical obedience to Him than we did the day before. And then why it is that you and I, as believers in Jesus, should resolve again tomorrow to pursue God even more radically, obediently than we did today. And then why it is that you and I should resolve, you get the idea, the next day to do the same thing. Why is it that you and I need each day to move purposefully through our day in such a way that we are more radically obedient than the day before for as many days as God gives us on this earth? Why is that the case? And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about how do we do that, because I know this, I can't do that in my strength. So by what power do we do that? What are the practices and disciplines that God comes to us and in grace He gives to us by which we might participate with His Holy Spirit in this this transformation, if you will, where we become progressively and progressively and progressively more like our Lord who perfectly obeyed the law of our God. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And let me tell you what's at stake, because that too is huge. What's at stake is what it is that God actually deserves from you in life. And I realize that's about as ambiguous as the title, isn't it? It's just kind of inaccessible. You hear that and you think the same thing. Okay, A, not sure what that is. And B, I'm pretty sure that it's important because, I mean, whatever it is that God deserves from me has got to be important. And the reality is, too, there's something within each one of us, particularly if our primary goal in life is self-preservation or self-protection, that feels a little bit threatened by that. It's like you hear that and the antennae go up, you know, it's like, oh, here we go. Because we want to protect you. One of the things we have done to the great disadvantaging of the people of God in the church with a capital C is we have set up the gospel in such a way that it places us in the center of it and says, God is here to serve you. Now, we need to acknowledge that God has withheld nothing from us. He sent the ultimate servant in Christ who gave his life, the very Son of God, and through whom in faith we have all of the riches of heaven. We are co-heirs with Christ. My goodness, he is not withheld. But we're not in the center of the universe. 
He doesn't revolve around us. And yet we've heard on TV and elsewhere, you know, hey, God is here to kind of, you know, help you succeed with your plans in life as though that actually is going to result in the kind of life that deep down in our hearts we're looking for, and it doesn't. What God requires of you and I, guys, is not a little something. It's not an occasional here and an occasional there. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. What God requires of us to His glory and for our good is our absolutely everything. He asks for everything. It's like you come to faith in Christ and metaphorically speaking, He just gives you this great big bag. He makes you clean. That's the key word for the day. And says, okay, I have purchased you with my blood. Now start putting things in there. Tom, I want you to put your wife in there. I want you to put your kids in there. And I want you to put them in there individually so that you can think about each one of them as you do. Their future, their lives, their health, their safety, their everything. Your goals and dreams and ambitions for them. Put it in. All that you own, throw it in there. It's a small bag. Your goals, your dreams, your health, your safety, your ambitions, your aspirations, your opportunities, whatever influence that God gives to you in life, whatever reputation that you have, all of your gifts, abilities, and skills, throw it all in the bag and then get in there yourself, you know, and then pull it up over your head. And since it's metaphorical, you can do this. It's going to be cool. You put your hands through it and then tie a little knot like a bow because... God loves bows, and then just hop on over to Jesus and deposit it at the feet of Christ. That's what he deserves. And for some reason, I think that a lot of people think that if they do that, it's going to mess up everything in life. Instead of if they do that, God is going to orchestrate their life in such a way that they get to know him in a way they otherwise never will, and they're going to go on the great adventure that they're trying to find by ignoring God and giving him a sliver of this and a sliver of that, and this and here and a little bit here, and not too much, Lord, and now you're coming too close. What's at stake is everything. And God demands for His glory and for our good that we give Him everything. That we wake up each day and say, okay, what by your grace and according to a power that I don't have, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, do I need to put in there today that wasn't in there yesterday? And I'll tell you, the temptation is once you put something in, you want to take it out again at times. Because you don't always like what the Lord does with it. This past week, we got a phone call while we were on vacation. It's just a voicemail because we're not checking messages or not looking at our phone, not carrying them around. So I'll be getting back with some of you later this week. But we got this voicemail from somebody at Four Kids of South Florida. We participate in their safe family program, which is basically a deal where moms and dads who are in crisis and need somebody to take their children for whatever reason, surgery, sickness, you know, poverty, for a period of time to allow them to sort of get on their feet, get it figured out, get a place to live, get a job, whatever. They take their kids to four kids and they say, here, find families that participate in your program that can take care of my kids for a day, a week, an hour, a year. You know, I don't know how long. Usually it's a month or two. And they said, you know, hey, we've got this little four-year-old boy. Would you guys be interested in doing this? You know, we really need to find if that would be very helpful. We need to find a place for him, etc." And so we listened to the voicemail, you know, and, and so my wife and I had to figure that out. And honestly, you know, we've done this before, and the last time that we did it, we had a precious little guy, okay? But man, was he a handful. Oh, my goodness, he had so much energy. It was like a nuclear facility, man. I'm so jealous, honestly, of the energy that he had. He did not sleep. I mean, that was really kind of a part of the deal. He had to go to sleep in front of the television because that didn't work, and then he'd get up all 
manner of times in the middle of the night, which is almost a capital offense in my house. I'm just not into getting waked up. And so, you know, it was at a time when everything was hectic. And I mean, at the end of it all, when it was finally said and done, we looked at each other and thought, good grief, is this really us? You know, I mean, is this, are we capable of this? Is that this season in our lives? And I think those are legitimate questions, but we really had no good excuse this time. None. It hits us at just the right time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got a new little boy living in our house. But my point is you put it in, right? And you want to take it out. Every day you got to put it all in. Jesus says to follow me is to do what? It is to take up your cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. That's what we're talking about. So, Lord, why do I have to get up every single day and resolve to do that? Why do I need to pursue by the power of your Spirit for your glory? And I'm going to say it, for my own personal good. Every day, a life of even more radical obedience to you than I did the day before. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And to answer that question, I want to look at at the gospel itself. Basic fundamentals, okay? And I want to look at how it's illustrated in Luke chapter 17 or in the first 19 verses of Luke chapter 17. And here's what I'm asking you to do. As we travel through these verses, I want you to follow the pattern of the gospel. I want you to follow the progress of the gospel all the way through these verses. And then when we get to the end, I want you to keep your eye on one leper. He will stand out amongst the crowd. You will not be able to miss him. And I want you to ask yourself... Why does he do what he does in this story? So speaking it to his disciples, and make no mistake about this, speaking to you today, our Lord says this in Luke 17, beginning in verse 1, he says, temptations to sin, which by the way is really just another way of saying temptations not to do exactly what we're talking about. Temptations to be disobedient to God instead of obedient to God, okay? Temptations to sin, Jesus says, are sure to come. And I love that statement, but not because it really teaches me anything new. I mean, honestly, that statement just falls in with a whole host of other statements that you find throughout the Bible that really you don't need for the Bible to tell you because, frankly, you already know that, don't you? Do you know why I love this statement and why I love all of those kinds of statements? Because it tells me that Jesus Christ knows what my life is actually like. And he knows what your life is like. You know what he knows? That they're full of temptation. He knows that when you get up in the morning, the gravitational pull of life in this world is not going to be towards a greater and greater obedience to Jesus. It's going to be towards a lesser and lesser obedience to Jesus. And I would submit to you that of all the people who have ever lived, Jesus Christ knows more about temptation than any of us. And here's why. Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that we are, and He never once gave in. The full load of every temptation loaded upon His shoulders did not crush Him. It crushes me all the time, and it crushes you. He alone knows the full weight. And he's coming to you and he's saying, look, I want to let you know something about you. Here we go. You ready? Temptations to sin in your life, in this world, are sure to come. But then he adds this. He says, but woe. And woe is a big word. It's not just one you use on a horse. It's a big word. Biblically speaking, it's huge. You know, as you read through the Old Testament and you listen to the prophets, they bring to you the oracles of God. They speak on behalf of God and they bring oftentimes oracles of woe. 
Woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you. Isaiah, by the way, sees God himself. And what does he say? He says, woe to me. Proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. Keep that in mind. Jesus here in the role of a prophet says, I'm going to proclaim a curse. Cursed be you, he's saying. Woe to the one through whom temptations come. In fact, he then goes on and he says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And when you understand who the little ones are here, this gets a little touchy because it's not just kids. It's speaking of the weak. It's speaking of the vulnerable. The little ones that he's referring to within the context of how Luke uses that phrase elsewhere in his gospel make it very clear that he's talking about the lost, he's talking about the crippled, he's talking about the hurting, he's talking about the hungry, he's talking about the homeless, he's talking about people who need to hand their kids over, he's talking about, you know, the orphan. He's talking about the disadvantaged in our society. And let me reread it to you in a way that will help you kind of feel the weight of what he's saying. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe, cursed be the one through whom temptations come. In fact, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should ignore the disadvantaged in his city. Than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin as a result of his lack of genuine concern and compassion. Now, does that make you at all uncomfortable? It makes me, like, tremble. And that's the point. Hang on, he's not done. Verse 3, Jesus goes on, he says, pay attention to yourselves. And then he says, if your brother sins against you, is the idea, but it would be kind of uncomfortable to deal with it. I mean, a little bit awkward maybe, and it would be relationally risky. And the last time you went down that path, it just really didn't turn out that way. And finally, everything's in peace again. And you know, if you go and talk to him, there's going to be this big blow up. And so what you can do instead, Jesus says, is go talk to somebody else about the way your brother sinned against you, about the way that he's mistreated you, about all the hurt and pain, and make your big case against him to that particular person. And that's how you ought to handle it. It's not how you ought to handle it. It's not in any sense what he says, but it is in every sense what every person here, starting with me, has done about 500 times. Isn't it? Intentionally and unintentionally, knowingly and unknowingly, the easiest part of our body to sin with is our mouth. I'm an expert at it. It's kind of uncomfortable, you know? I mean, Jesus is laying some heavy stuff down. And he's not done. Pay attention, he says, to yourselves. If your brother sins, go directly to him is the point and deal with it. Rebuke him. And if he repents, well, I mean, depending upon what the sin was, if it's a real whopper, it doesn't say that. If he repents, the idea being no matter what the sin was, forgive him. Then he says, and if he sins against you seven times, the number seven is the number of completion. He doesn't mean, and on the eighth time, you don't have to forgive him anymore. Because now he's up to eight, so that's it. He's saying, no matter how many times he sins against you in the day, and, and if he turns to you seven times, so for each time he sins against you, he turns and he says, I repent. What does he say? He says, you, and here comes the big word. Here we go. He says, you, here we go, must, wow, 
forgive him. Not you might want to consider forgiving him. I think it would be really nice if you forgave him. You know what? The whole family is getting together for Thanksgiving and we're all going to be in the same room together and we'd all be relieved if you would forgive him before we have to do that. What did I ask you to track in this story? The progress of the gospel, right? That's it. Where does the gospel begin in this story? It begins with Jesus just pulling out a few tiny examples from the great big standard of God of what it is that God actually requires of His people. And do you know what that is in its totality? If I can just sum it up in maybe a sentence or so, what God actually requires of every one of His creatures is perfect love of God and of one's neighbor as it's expressed in thought, word, and deed, in perfect obedience to the perfectly holy law of our perfectly holy God. By the way, from conception to your last heartbeat. How are you feeling? It's good you're sitting down, right? Me too. It's devastating. You're done. You know what you are, really? You're unclean. That's what you recognize. And it causes you to despair, and not just you, but the disciples too. I mean, they just got little dribs and drabs of that great big standard, and look what they say. Verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord in response to this little bit of that great big standard, they cry out, increase our faith. Now, why do they say that? Because when you and I or they are confronted with what God really requires of us, we recognize a few things like, A, we have not kept that standard, and B, we cannot keep that standard. So we cry out for faith, and they say to the Lord, increase our faith. And how does he respond? It's very telling. He says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, a notoriously tiny seed, you could say to this mulberry tree in that day, a notoriously huge tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, you're onto something when you cry out for more faith. You're starting to tread down the right path with that kind of language. He's affirming what they're saying and kind of where they're going. He's saying, okay, hey, here's the deal. Faith is the key to being made clean, and not just for what you've done in the past, but for what you're doing now and for what you will even yet do. And faith also is the key to unlocking the power of God in your life such that you are enabled to get up by His power every day and go, okay, Lord, I'm resolving today by Your power to pursue a life of even more radical obedience to You today than yesterday. The only question is, well, then faith in who? Or faith in what? Because if we've learned anything at this point, it can't be faith in me. I'm unclean. I'm undone. I'm like Isaiah. You see the Lord, and what does he say? Woe to me. I am undone. It means I am literally ruined. Luther translated it, I am dissolved. It's like an Alka-Seltzer. Have you ever seen that? Just drop it in. It's kind of cool. It's the only part of Alka-Seltzer I like is watching it fizz. That's it. Tasting it, awful. But it just comes undone in the presence of water. It's who we are in the presence of God. We are undone. We have seen the standard, and it's pretty clear we have not and we cannot keep it. And what's more, as we're going to see now, even when we do seem to kind of stumble along in life and finally get something right, 
Even that doesn't count for much with God because the reality is then all we're doing is what's expected. We're just doing our duty. That's what Jesus says next. Verse 7, he says, will any of you who has a what? Because it's a significant word. It describes who we are in relation to God. Will any of you who has a servant, that's who we are, plowing or keeping sheep to save him? Or say to him, when he has come in from the field, so he's worked a long day, he's tired, he's put in a lot of hours, he's worked hard, he's done his duty as the servant, but his duty isn't done for the day. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? That is to say, finish your duty for the day and then afterward... You will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now, he may thank him because he's nice. He may thank him because he's courteous. But he doesn't have to thank him out of obligation. The servant is just doing what the servant does. I mean, you picture this if you're a parent and your kids actually have chores, like around the house, they've got to get some things done. You know, they clear the table, for example, after dinner. Well, then they clear the table. You don't have a party for them, do you? It's like, oh, now I love you. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But you're not obligated to do that. You don't do that. You know, I mean, they, they, they scrape the dishes. They put them in the dishwasher. Woo, you know, I'm going to buy you a car. No, I'm not. They make their bed. Actually, that's a big one. I mean, you might love them more if they did that. But, but my point is, clear the table. What are they doing? They're just doing what they do. They're, they're doing their function. They're being a servant within the household. They're completing their chore. They're not subject to some special commendation as a result, and neither are we. Jesus says, so you also, meaning so you just like the servant, just like the child who clears the table, when you have done all that you were commanded to do by God, your master, say this about yourself. Let this be your attitude toward any good thing you do. Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Wow. So the disciples are a bit blown away, sensing their inadequacies, sensing their failures, Sensing their inability to do anything of good value before the Lord that would in turn obligate Him to make them or anyone else clean. They're undone and they cry out to God even as we should in response to the standard of God. And they say, Lord, increase our faith because A, we haven't kept your standard. B, we cannot keep your standard. And C, even when we seem to get something right, and that isn't much, we're still just doing our duty. We're only doing what we're supposed to do. We're cleaning the table. So, Lord, increase our faith. Again, the only question being, all right, well, then faith in who and faith in what? Because it's pretty clear, I hope, at this point that it can't be faith in me and it can't be faith in you. It can't be faith in our abilities and, and, and in our efforts. So Luke answers that question by placing this next story right here in the gospel, verse 11. He tells us this, he says, On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by not one, but ten lepers, who stood at a distance, and we'll see why in a second, 
And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, can we come plow a field for you? Can we come tend some sheep for you? Can we wait a table for you? Hey, you know what? Can we make your bed? Can we clear off the table after dinner? Can we scrape the dishes and put them in the dishwasher? Is there some act of obedience that we can do for you, which will in turn obligate you to do what we need for you to do for us, which is to make us clean? Clean's the key word. They need to be made clean spiritually and we need to be, or physically, and we need to be made clean spiritually. Jesus encounters 10 lepers and you need to understand leprosy within the context of the first century. It was a horrifically disfiguring disease and it was thought to be incurable. The writings of some of the rabbis from that period indicate that they deemed it as difficult to heal or to cleanse, is the way it would be said, a leper as it was to raise the dead. When you put cleanse a leper on one side of the scale, raise the dead on the other, it came out even. Now think about that for a minute. How many lepers do you think these people ever saw cleansed? Answer, none. None. It was also thought to be highly contagious, even though in fact it's not. But it was so scary... And its consequences were so devastating that as soon as you began to break out with some kind of a leprous sore on your skin, let's run down the list of just a few of the things you lost. You lost your husband or wife. You lost every one of your kids. You lost your parents, your siblings, all your friends, all your family. You lost your business dreams, hopes, aspirations. You were forced to leave the community to which you belonged and to live outside of the community. You are not allowed to come within a certain distance of people without leprosy. That explains why as Jesus is coming into the village, see, they're outside, he encounters them and they call out to him from a distance. They're unclean. That's a problem within Judaism. You were oftentimes made to wear a cowbell around your neck so people could hear you coming. Imagine the indignity of that. And in every case, when people came around you that did not have leprosy, you had to raise your hands up in the air and you had to cry out with a loud voice, unclean, 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 because here's the deal within the context of the Jewish ceremonial law. If you touched somebody, you would make them unclean. And if you touched one of their belongings, you would make it unclean. Now, they could become clean again, but they had to go through this whole big deal process, and they had to be separated from the temple and from the worship of God and so forth. During their period of uncleanness, there were all of these consequences of being unclean. So you've got to look at these lepers, kind of place yourself for a second amongst the faces in the crowd of ten, and ask yourself, what in the world did these guys have to offer Jesus Christ in their condition of uncleanness? What could they do for him? Nothing. They couldn't even come within six feet of him. The only thing they had to offer him was their disease. That's it. And so they did what every one of us needs to do. They completely abandoned themselves and their ability to do anything good at all. And they cried out in faith to Christ for mercy. There is one who can raise the dead. There is one who can cleanse the leper. But there's just one. 
Luke says, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by not one but ten lepers who stood at a distance, and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, here's what they actually say, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests, which if you don't understand what's going on, sounds kind of disappointing. It's like, no, no, they want to be healed. Well, here's the deal. It was the role of the priest to examine someone who was a leper and allegedly had been healed. And then, if they pass the examination to legally declare them healed, at which time they could then take up their life again and return to the arms of their husband or wife, to the arms of their children, to the arms of their parents, siblings, you know, every, their whole life back, but not until they're declared clean. When Jesus saw them, He said to them, Go. And show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Even as you and I are cleansed spiritually, when we do exactly this same thing. But then one of them, and I told you to watch out for this guy, when he saw that he was healed... The idea being, before he got to the priest, before he was declared clean together with the rest of the guys, before he resumed his life having been declared clean, one of them, before any of that, turned back and praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at the feet of Jesus, which culturally speaking is just another way of saying he pulled out a big huge bag in light of his healing and he put everything in it. Husband, wife, you know, kids, family, the whole shooting match. He got in it himself because it's metaphorical. He can do this. He pulled it up over his head, stuck his arms out, tied a nice little bow, hopped on over to Christ and laid it all at the feet of Jesus and said, this is what you deserve. But why did he do that? Well, it certainly wasn't for self-protection or self-preservation or self-interest. Think about what he risked and sacrificed. I mean, Jesus has commanded this guy and the other nine to all go down to the priest, right, to be declared clean. As they're going, they find that they are, in fact, clean. So it's going to be a good proclamation when we get there. He stops short of completely obeying the command, turns around, and reverses the path by which he was healed. Well, will that undo his healing? Now we see that it doesn't, but the other nine didn't take that chance. Curious guy. Not only that, again, he's been separated from everyone he holds near and dear, everything he holds near and dear. Can you imagine the longing of his heart to get back to his wife, his family, everyone, you see? He recognizes that he's clean. you imagine the excitement? But he puts it on hold, doesn't he? That's clearly in the big bag of, I'm all in on Jesus. But none of the other guys did that. Moreover, as we're going to see in a second, this guy who returns is a Samaritan. Well, that's a big deal. See, Jesus is a Jew, and the Jews hated Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor. They hated the Jews. And it probably would be easy for his Samaritan face to kind of get lost in a crowd of ten, you know, so the Jewish rabbi has healed all ten, maybe not realizing that one of them was a Samaritan, but he has nowhere to hide when he comes back by himself. So what might Jesus do? Why does this guy come back? Luke tells us, I think, when he says this, 
He says, then one of them, this is verse 15, when he, and here it is, saw that he was healed. So it's in response to his healing. This event that is equivalent to the dead being raised has just occurred in him. When he saw that he was healed, could not contain himself. Could not even wait until after he had seen the priest and checked in with his family. There was going to be no stopping him now. He turned back and praising God with a loud voice. See, oftentimes we think that surrendering our lives to God is something we need to do begrudgingly. Oh, I guess I'll do it. I don't know. I don't get the impression this guy is lacking in joy. I don't think he's like going, oh, man, I can't believe, you know, now I've got it. There are things in life that you have to do, and there are things in life that you get to do. This guy saw that he was healed, and he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He is jacked, okay? And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And then we read, now he was a Samaritan. And watch what Jesus says. It says, and Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? You know, I read that this week and I thought, man, I wonder if Jesus thinks that today. He looks out upon the millions of people that he has cleansed through faith in him. And he worries and wonders, why do only so few ever actually come and render to God the praise that he deserves? Here it's one out of ten. Jesus sees this thankful, worshiping leper, and he says, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found, he says, to return and to give what? Because here he's defining what this man has just done. Was no one found to return and give praise, to give worship to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, rise and go your way, for your faith has made you well. So why did he come back, having been made clean? To offer to God what what God really deserves, and why should we, having been made clean spiritually, which is by far the greater miracle, frankly, clean of a far greater and eternal affliction, do likewise. We should do it as an act of worship, as a conscious act of thankfulness, and each day reminding ourselves that we have been made clean and set free by the one who alone brings life out of death. He has shed his blood for us, and he has purchased us, and that is not a suffocating thing. That is a liberating thing. It does not lead to a lesser life. It leads to a greater life. It is not more boring. It is by far more adventurous. And it's there that we're most satisfied and joyful. We should get up every day and say, okay, God, that's who you are. That's who I am. And I just, I couldn't, you know, I just put everything else on hold today because I needed to get with you and say this. Okay, today I resolve by the power of your spirit to pursue a life 
of even more radical obedience to you than yesterday. Not because by clearing the table and putting away the dishes, you all of a sudden owe me a party, but because I owe you absolutely everything. That's it. So if you've never come to Jesus, you know, I mean, you haven't totally gotten the whole standard of God is perfect love of God and neighbor, like all the time. And that A, you haven't kept it, B, you cannot keep it, and C, even the good things that you have done, and let's say that there are some, are just taking out the trash or clearing the table or putting away the dishes. That you and I, spiritually speaking, are just like the lepers, nothing to offer God, zero except the cry for mercy, then I would encourage you to call out to Christ in faith this morning and experience His cleansing. But if you have done that, and I know that's at least most of us here today, then do you want to be part of the nine or or do you want to kind of buddy up with the one? What's it going to be? You know, I mean, as the Lord hands you the big figurative metaphorical sack, What is it that needs to go in there that's not in there? Because it's not a mystery, is it? And what is holding you back from just going all in on Jesus, getting in, pulling it up over your head, tying a nice bow, and hopping it over to the feet of the one who can take your life and do something eternally significant with it? For that's what He deserves from us. All right, well, in a second, I'm going to invite one of our young adults to come on up, Joy Pitcairn, and she's going to tell you uh, just a little bit about what God has been doing in her life. And it's really exciting, you know, she's got a lot of stuff, and she's going all in, and she's going to tell you how God has sort of led her to this in this next season of her life, and, um, and I hope that it's inspiring to you. I hope it gives you to think about what you ought to be doing for the Lord in this season of your life, and I hope mostly, more than anything, just that God's glorified in her testimony. So I'm going to pray and hand it over to Joy. Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for the blessing it is to come to it. God, we thank You for the way, frankly, that it even unmasks us and makes us uncomfortable, for it does so that it might drive us to Christ. Lord, we thank You that there is a hope of one who brings life out of death. We thank You, Lord, that there is one who can cleanse even the leper, And Father, I pray that you would drive us to the feet of the Lord and to recognize that we bring with us nothing but our sin and to leave it there with Him, to allow His perfect life to be substituted for our very imperfect life. God, to allow the punishment that He bore for sin on the cross to be the punishment for our sin, that we might, by His blood, be washed and healed. And Lord, I pray also that you will not give us rest until we go all in, in response to that cleansing. I pray these things for your glory and that your kingdom might go forth in Jesus' name. Amen.